In July 2015, the Federal Government of Australia ushered in a new system, one that would automate the analysis, identification and raising of debts against the recipients of Centrelink welfare. Within the promise of budget repair and innovation was a scheme that was illegal and aggressive in nature, which ultimately affected more than 400,000 Australians. The consequences of this debacle have been profound. It has resulted in a billion-dollar class action settlement, Senate inquiries, and most recently, a Royal Commission. These extensive public hearings over the course of several weeks have laid bare the profound failure of responsibility on the part of responsible ministers and the public service. It presents to us a cautionary tale on the hazards that lie in the use of automated decision-making. Early warnings as to the illegality of the program were ironed out by the time they reached Cabinet as a proposal by the then Social Services Minister, Scott Morrison. Here is Malcolm Turnbull, the then Prime Minister before the Royal Commission. I, I did not turn my mind to the legality of the program. It never occurred to us that it was unauthorised. And in fact, I know you, in this bundle you have a redacted version of Scott Morrison's CABSAP, presumably from 2014 or thereabouts, in which it is expressly stated that AGS is advised on the legality of the scheme and no legislation is required. The performance of the public service was hardly better. There was a stark absence of courage and candour in averting or questioning the program. It was not until 2019, a full four years after its inception, that the Robodet scheme was brought to an end. Well, you knew it was unlawful and you knew that averaging was occurring. Don't wind back what you've already said a number of times. You had the opportunity to do something about it and you didn't take it, disregarding the consequences to those who were the subject of the unlawful scheme. I could have acted and I didn't. One of the first to raise his voice against the program was Terry Carney, currently Professor Emeritus at the University of Sydney Law School. It was as a part-time member of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal the AAT, where Terry first heard of the scheme as he dealt with appeals against debts raised by it. Terry ruled against the government department in several cases and raised his concerns within the tribunal in 2017. That very same year, following a decision by the cabinet, he was not reappointed to his position at the tribunal, despite having first served as a member in 1976. However, the AAT itself did not last much longer either. Last year, it was disbanded by the Labor government as they believed the tribunal had been irredeemably riddled by political appointments. Today I'm announcing the Albanese government will abolish the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. I sat down with Terry Carney to examine the myriad failures of the Robodet scheme and the dangers presented by automated decision-making. We will also turn our discussion to contemplate the AAT and consider the reasons behind its unfortunate demise. So our first topic is the Royal Commission on Robo-Debt. When did you first hear about the scheme and this robo-debt that emerged? Well, um, for nearly 40 years, I was a part-time member of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. And in early 2017, I uh, handed down uh, one of the firsts of what for me, were five, um, and for the tribunal were a couple of hundred uh, decisions invalidating, finding that uh, the robo-debt scheme completely lacked any legal foundation, was idiotic mathematics um, that assumed that uh, <laughs> uh, Donald Bradman, every time he went to the uh, crease, made uh, 99.94 runs. Uh, in other words, it, it, it took an average and, and sought to apply it to the individual fortnights that people were having uh, uh, debts raised against them, uh, when in fact their rate of entitlement uh, fluctuates fortnight by fortnight, depending on whether they had an income or not. So um, <clears throat> uh, not long after that, later that year, the government decided they didn't need me anymore, so they didn't uh, uh, renew my appointment. That was a a last-minute decision. Uh, Royal Commission uh, um, digging found that um, I was in the news release uh, 
<laughs> to announce uh, my reappointment, but uh, uh, in four or five days between the drafting of the news release and the final decision, they decided they didn't need me. Uh, after that, I started to write about, um, for the first time I could write publicly, um, it wouldn't have been proper as a tribunal member to have been airing the concerns so directly, but I was able to do that in early 2018. How did you raise it internally? Because when you're first hearing about these systems and you're finding that there's something wrong with it, do you then approach your colleagues? Do you have to put out a memo? Well, um, there are two levels of um, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal's work in social uh, security. The first of those levels gets uh, 10,000 or so cases across the country a year. And those hearings, quite properly, are held in camera, uh, in private. And uh, the reasons that are produced are shared only with the applicant and the department. They're not published as at the higher level. If either party is not happy with the decision that is made at the first level, uh, at the second level it's a public hearing and the um, decisions can be read on uh, a website called, uh, called Ostley. So um, I was, um, as I said, uh, pretty well the first to make uh, an invalidation decision. And about uh, three or four months later, <clears throat> there was a training day of the tribunal, and, uh, its New South Wales and uh, Queensland members. And uh, in the course of that uh, meeting, I uh, drew attention to um, my decision. And uh, there were about three of them, I think, by that stage. Um, it was the middle of the year and um, provided the um, information. Uh, I mean, all tribunal members have access to our decisions, but <laughs> to make it a, a little easier, I uh, um, made public the, uh, the internal sort of uh, code name for that particular matter. Did that feel frustrating to see something so poorly organised that is illegal keep functioning and being um, almost unable to stop it? Uh, yeah, it, it, it was. <laughs> I mean, if the government uh, had reappointed me, I would have felt obliged to resign so that I could enter the public discourse and <laughs> uh, properly air the concerns. Um, I mean, look, uh, Social Security is a really big administration. There are a lot of changes. You know, years ago, the assets test was introduced. All kinds of policies are introduced that are either very controversial or sometimes in, um, in legal foundation or, you know, a suspect. But yes, uh, it, um, it's the most outrageous experience that I've ever had, <laughs> either in social security or public policy generally, that for over three years, something that, you know, lots of people were saying was illegal uh, bad mathematics and um, unethical was allowed to continue. Well, let's, let's go into maybe the legal issues. Why was the system illegal, Terry? It was illegal because the only basis on which a social security debt can be raised uh, against somebody of working age, and that's what all the robo-debts were, there were uh, just on half a million of them, <laughs> uh, the only basis on which you can find uh, a debt is to say that the fortnight by fortnight amount that a person has been paid in the past, which varies with uh, fluctuating uh, earnings or lack of uh, earnings or casual earnings of the recipient, uh, to say that uh, the amount that they reported to Centrelink as the basis of uh, making each fortnight's payment was wrong and that the correct amount for those fortnights was a different so-called true amount. Well, the way the RoboDebt was constructed was to say uh, the um, information that employers report to the tax office uh, every six to 12 months or so about earnings of their em employees, that that total amount for the six months or 12 months was matched with the uh, Social Security recipient's information and uh, it was just averaged um, over the, all the fortnights in the year or the six months as the case may be. And, you know, at, at the most obvious, uh, there'd be people who uh, weren't uh, even on benefit in, at all uh, during the time that they had employment. But more usually yeah. it was that 
and they could have part-time. They go from yes. part-time to full-time. Yeah, yeah. all of so, that sort of thing. Yeah, all this information is not captured in those average statements. So why was that illegal? So they're using this new method, and why couldn't they do it well, that way? Well, they couldn't do it that way because <laughs> uh, the rate calculation, as I say, um, required that uh, not only that you have it, the fortnight by fortnight uh, income, but actually there are, in all that it's to deal with people who have insecure, casual, variable earnings, there's a smoothing of uh, sort of operation within the way that the rate calculation works. It says if you uh, have a, a fortnight where you earned nothing, well, because if you had earned some money in that fortnight, and not all of it would have been counted under the income test, you would have had been allowed to keep 100% without it affecting your payment a certain uh, a number of dollars. Will it, in order to smooth um, the fluctuating income, will allow you to carry forward that sort of income bank entitlement uh, to future um, to future situations. So, uh, look, what RoboDebt did was that, you know, uh, in the old days, um, about 7% of the situations where the tax office average didn't match the fortnight by fortnight figures, they made inquiries and uh, used their powers to um, uh, obtain the uh, pay slips or the bank records uh, in respect of the person and, and raised a debt. RoboDebt said, well, look, we're going to just presume a debt uh, for all of those uh, other 90, <laughs> 93%. Uh, uh, we're going to send people a letter that says uh, you owe us this debt and uh, the only way you can contest it is to go online. Um, uh, this was RoboDebt's early name was the Online Compliance Initiative. It sounds even more ominous than RoboDebt. Yeah, yeah, it did, didn't it? <laughs> and, um, and um, you know, it's a sort of... <laughs> nudge people into into um, doing things entirely online, which of course is a real issue for people who don't yeah. have a smartphone or can't afford to keep their plan up to date or aren't good at, uh, at using uh, technology. And they're already a very vulnerable group as well. Yeah, very vulnerable group. I mean, we talk about uh, the digital divide as the, you know, the description for people who don't have uh, phones or don't have good internet connection or aren't um, you know, competent at, at using it. So yeah, in order to force people to <laughs> to use this uh, illegal, <laughs> uh, unmathematical system, they didn't put on the letters in the early days. Uh, there was no other contact information. There was no phone number. There was no email address. There was no other way of contacting or contesting the supposed debt. Um, and and usually these supposed debts. Um, when the information of the person's fortnightly earnings were obtained, either turned out to be zero, or in place of being, you know, six or seven thousand dollars, would turn out to be a few hundred dollars. And the reason that that often be a small debt is that that be a day or two difference between uh, a person's actual pay uh, earnings on the one hand and uh, uh, the fortnight uh, that um, is used by Centrelink to determine your um, payment mm. entitlement. So there's two, it seems like there's two big issues here. Firstly, this kind of method of averaging, which was, as you say, unmathematical, if not irrational. And then secondly, this kind of almost reverse onus where they they find a difference and rather than proving it themselves, they just presume it exists, send it over to the welfare recipient and then say, well, it's for you to prove, for you to prove that this debt doesn't exist. Yes, yes. Yeah. And they did that uh, reversal of the onus of proof in the face of... Uh full court decision of the Federal Court of Australia and uh, an even older High Court case that, putting it simply, uh, said in a situation uh, of a debt, uh, it's up to the um, department uh, to prove it. Uh, you cannot you cannot uh, switch that over to say, no, no, it's the debt or <laughs> who has to disprove it. Uh, and secondly, the High Court ruling um, said uh, when it's an allegation of something like uh, a debt which can affect a person's credit rating, and in the case of lawyers, it wasn't a hypothetical issue. If somebody had a Centrelink uh, debt <laughs> as a student, uh, when it came to moving their admission to practice, you had to you had to explain that this wasn't a moral failing <laughs> uh, that should uh, should prevent your entry into the legal profession from doing the kind of 
job that you've been trained at university to undertake. So uh, what the High Court said that uh, in cases like that is that not only is it up to the department to prove it, uh, but you've got to do it on more than just, uh, you know, <laughs> a 49, 51% balance of, you know, sort of probabilities. You've got to have uh, reasonably convincing proofs of um, that there's a debt and, and what its amount might be. You have, I think, with the Royal Commission, it, I think what's been revealed is this kind of opacity and this failure of accountability from senior public servants as well as the um, responsible politicians. How did you feel seeing about what was happening internally, having this revealed to you through these hearings at the Royal Commission? Well, uh, I mean, it, it brought home really in spades <laughs> uh, to a degree that even I didn't think, um, you know, things were so bad in Talarook, so, 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 so to speak, <laughs> to use the Australian phrase. I mean, we knew that there had been a de-skilling and uh, a shedding of staff within key agencies. We knew that decision-making is made by people at very low junior levels, if you can put it that way, within uh, agencies, high volumes, and, um, you know, the people are likely to have really only very basic training in um, one, you know, narrow uh, aspect of their job. It came as a real shock to discover that no matter what level of the bureaucracy you're looking at on there appeared to be, well, not only no awareness, but when there was an awareness, uh, this sort of sense that almost of being a member of a cult or something, you, that people were members of the public service cult to support the whatever the minister or the prime minister of the day thought was um, uh, an appropriate policy and, and, and to pay no regard to public service codes of conduct and other um, uh, obligations. So, you know, for instance, um, although only 521 cases got to the um, AAT, RoboDebt cases, and that's interesting, that's, that's only five in every 10,000 of the total number of RoboDebts that were found in the class action. I mean, it's an extraordinarily low figure. Part of the reason was that when people uh, sought to uh, get in contact about their robo-debt, the department refused to make a decision. And if there's no final decision about something, as a question of law, as a matter of law, you can't actually start the process of getting internal review, getting it to the AAT. Do you think they did that knowingly, Terry? Yes. So they purposefully chose not to do a decision so that these recipients who'd received these debts couldn't have the opportunity to or have recourse to the courts or the tribunal. Correct. And and, and there's evidence um, uh, before the Royal Commission uh, by witnesses um, uh, uh, concerning, asserting <laughs> and confirming uh, that fact. It seems like the impression you have, and tell me if you, this is not correct, but there's a kind of culture of secrecy, as you describe, a kind of cult to the political motivations and interests of the minister although this may not be explicit, but implicit one, and a kind of form of incompetence amongst the staff that have to be making these important decisions, and that being a particular result of a lack of funding and resources within their department. Uh, well, it's partly a product of the lack of funding and uh, resourcing within the department. It's, it, it's mainly due to the fact that they became so intimidated by uh, the political culture that they acted entirely spinelessly, uh, but uh, that they were not only spineless, particularly at the middle and upper levels um, of decision-making in um, refusing to um, pay attention and call out the prospect of there being problems with the scheme. <clears throat> it was worse than that. Um, there was quite deliberate gaming. I think there's no other description for it. What do you mean by gaming? Well, I'm... <laughs> gaming <laughs> included the one we just discussed um, that, yeah. uh, to prevent a case uh, getting into the merits review uh, internal and external opportunity for it to be looked at by a, an independent uh, body or person to see it, whether it is correct, the correct and preferable decision at law and in other ways. Um, but it also applied to the um, 210 or so uh, decisions of tribunal members saying uh, this is an illegal scheme, this debt can't be recovered against this particular uh, applicant. In not one case 
did the department uh, say, oh, well, uh, <laughs> we don't actually agree with that finding of illegality because it would bring into question a one and a half to four billion dollar uh, savings measure. This, this is what, I mean, robo-debt was a, a big issue in terms of avoiding <laughs> reducing the expenditure of the Commonwealth government uh, and in recouping monies that they thought were debts, but <laughs> to the extent that they were recouped from people's tax returns and so on, you know, meant that um, uh, the government was actually receiving uh, some revenue. Well, um, you know, and not one of those cases did the department exercise its uh, right to take the case to the general division where it would have been a public hearing and where the decision uh, would have been put for all to read on the public on the public record that's that's not just a fluke that that's a that's a pattern of <laughs> behavior on the part of government um, uh, public servants in that instance and you know look it's one that has been talked about overseas <laughs> it's called a policy of to give it a <laughs> a trendy name administrative non-acquiescence. Could you actually define a bit that term? And it's the worst of, you know, I guess an ordinary person's feeling about how lawyers uh, operate. I mean, what it says is that, you know, if you've got, <clears throat> as there were, nearly half a million debts and only, only 521 of those are getting up to uh, a tribunal that says it's illegal, <laughs> strategically what we'll do is we'll uh, accept that 200 of those half a million debts we accept the um, the umpire's uh, you know decision but uh, in all the other cases we're just going to keep on keeping on we're just going to keep on collecting the unlawful debt and you know look, lawyers strategically do that sort of thing in civil litigation and get an awful name for it but for private actors you can maybe sometimes understand because they're acting in their own interests the public servants yeah. who are acting for the public interest, at least as much as you would want, yeah. are failing to do so. Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, look, there were a couple of public servants, <laughs> I mean, a couple of, of, of whom were really traumatised who break down in, on the stand. In, and these, interestingly, the ones who showed that, uh, that emotion were the ones who'd actually tried on several occasions, you know, not just once, but um, on repeated attempts within the department itself and also within the ombudsman's office because the ombudsman's office um, completely failed. The ombudsman's office uh, made a decision not to accept the recommendations of the, the team uh, that was working on the two references that they, they looked at RoboDebt twice. They were the people within the office with the expertise to be developing the draft material and so on recommended, proposed, that the doubts about the legality of RoboDebt uh, be made part of the reports that were brought down. And, and I remember reading about how even legal advice dating back from even 2014 from DHS warning about the potential legal issues of the scheme were withheld from the ombudsman. Look, it, it, it's all a part of a pattern. I use the word gaming. Gaming to what intent for a lot of people at all kinds of levels was, uh, and this includes ministers and minister staff and senior public servants, middle-range public servants, is uh, what was the object? To have plausible deniability. So, you know, from early on in the Royal Commission, people have said, you know, was the blind eye being turned uh, so blatantly by people? <laughs> you know, wise monkey doesn't doesn't want to know, doesn't want to see, doesn't want to hear. <laughs> yeah. So there was a lot of you know, in the colloquial, also duck shoving that you know it came out between because there were two departments uh, um, involved. Um, the one with the greater expertise, social services, social security and uh, the Department of Human Services. <laughs> Late in the piece, they took the word human out of their title and I always thought that was a, a particular... <laughs> I've actually <laughs> said that in print. <laughs> I, didn't, I don't think they really needed to, did they? No, they didn't. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting where you're seeing these legal concerns essentially kind of be ironed out. And that's one of the things that was stated by Scott Morrison is that well, the information was watered down by the time it came to him. So, for example, the, the legal advice in 2014 that I mentioned earlier 
that can, by the time that comes to Scott Morrison and then um, social services minister, it's already been ironed out to an extent where details of that concern don't seem as sharp. They don't seem as distinct. Even the most basic references to, quote, policy and legislative change be eliminated from then the budget submission to the cabinet who ultimately makes that final decision. So you're seeing as you rise up the hierarchy to those who are more and more accountable politically, the level of detail about the issue actually pixelates. Yeah. And look, the event that you just described happened over a, a couple of days, I think it was about five days, and and it was at um, the ministerial office level. And, um, you know, the beginning of that was when various savings measures were presented uh, to the minister and the minister's staff. And yes, uh, in those early five days before the final one, <laughs> uh, the uh, the initial piece of pieces of paper said, uh, you know, legislative change uh, will be required. And then five days later, when ticking off of what becomes um, the sending of that savings measure into the into the budget and government process, those words uh, legislative change is required uh, had been dropped from the uh, documentation. I suspect, uh, I mean, it's up to the Commission, but um, when you're looking at um, something for which there is no evidence and about which you are only speculating, um, well, I don't think we're ever going to know whether that was a deliberate or inadvertent. Let's move on to our next topic, Terry. Um, since you've written extensively through your work at the Centre of Excellence uh, for Automated Decision-Making in Society, which forms of algorithms in decision-making worry you the most? Are the ones where the which are the most hidden? I mean, because oddly enough, RoboDebt wasn't strictly even AI or or maybe it's just automated decision making, but it's just a mismatching of data, really, <laughs> uh, and taking humans out of it. So it's the ones where machine learning uh, systems, in other words, the most complex forms of artificial intelligence, the ones that operate in the case of machine learning by uh, having uh, big access to huge data sets of past human decision making, and then uh, essentially have the um, AI <laughs> learn how to mirror what it was that the humans did in the, that mass of prior past decisions, and indeed learn perhaps to do it even better than the human decision makers were able to do. But in the context of public governance, this um, opacity of the systems, its complexity, yeah. why exactly does it worry you? Well, because it it um, determines, I mean, there's, it, it's not at that level of sophistication that I just described, but it's moving in that direction. For people on Social Security who are unemployed, determining which of three kinds of employment assistance you will, you will get and, and what kind of obligations you'll be under as a recipient of an unemployment payment depends on a non-public algorithm called the, the, job, the JSCI, the, the Job Seeker Instrument, which um, collects information and on the basis of that secret information determines how capable I am of finding a job for myself or at the other end of the uh, scheme, how, much, how many vulnerabilities and barriers and other kinds of assistance uh, I might need. Is that a scheme currently in place, Terry? Yeah, it's a scheme that's been in place for... Um, since the 1990s, um, early 1990s at least, yes. So it's a kind of rating of your ability to find more employment effectively. Is, is that right? Yeah, it is a, an instrument that uh, was particularly needed when Australia took the radical step of saying we won't have any public service job agencies uh, anymore. Those agencies were set up after the end of the Second World War internationally and were a major answer to, along with Keynesian economic policy of uh, economic stimulus, of ensuring that uh, we didn't uh, replicate having 30% plus uh, unemployment, for, uh, which was what in the 1930s the world had suffered from uh, during the Great Depression. So Australia um, fully privatised the uh, job placement 
and assistance agencies and uh, put it, obviously, on a, on a market footing where the result, which is of getting a, an unemployed person back into work and keeping them in good employment, is um, a sort to be managed by um, incentive payments to the privatised employment agency. So the classification instrument tells uh, the government which of those three streams to put a person in, the one that's going to lead to a lot of money being... And has some immense con- consequence to them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah it's a huge consequence. Have there been any uh, legal issues that have appeared as a result of that system? Uh, well, interestingly, it's not an administrative decision. Ah, <laughs> definitely, we'll be definitely talking about that later. And because, it, yeah, that's right. And uh, uh, not being a, a final or ultimate uh, uh, decision, it uh, yeah, it can't be re- reviewed um, under the administrative review uh, process or taken to the courts under the um, administrative decisions judicial review. Act. Yeah, well, we'll discuss it further, um, I guess, in our in our final topic. But there's also an interesting case I remember reading from the, in the federal court uh, with Pinterich, I'm sure you've, you've heard of, where they, they essentially ask because the, the Judicial Review Act deals with decisions, decision being made. However, what do you do when that's a fully automated process? Is that a decision? Because the way that they then defined a decision was that it, at least one element of it, is that it required a mental process of deliberation and cogitation by a human decision maker. And that creates a lot of issues of accountability because this legislation is designed to cover decisions that maybe have that effect. But now it creates a loophole with automated forms of decisions. So what did you think of that of that particular federal court decision, Terry? Well, it was a split decision and uh, I think the majority decision uh, is a nonsense, uh, frankly. And... Um, in other words, I, <laughs> I prefer the, the minority decision of Duncan Kerr, uh, Justice Duncan Kerr, which says that an automated decision, provided the uh, legal authority has been provided to say that a decision made by a computer is a decision, and that is, has been long the case in social security and tax and quite a lot of areas of federal um, administration, uh, then it is a decision. And, and, and really, the majority's uh, outcome well, tells us two things. The first thing is it's, it's perverse because it actually uh, narrows the ground for review. If it's not a decision, <laughs> because it doesn't have that human element in it, then it can't be the subject of merits review, for instance. And that's, that's perverse. The second thing uh, I think it tells us is that um, most of the pronouncements, and some of these are at a high level, like um, in, in, in Europe, uh, the the um, requirement that there be no black boxes uh, <laughs> where we don't know what the workings and uh, elements of a, an algorithm uh, might be. Uh, it's it's uh, the requirement of transparency or explainability and all of those. And look, they, they make some small, very minor benefit, but they are most definitely not the answer to the problems posed by overuse misuse of artificial intelligence. I think we've got reached one of those churning points um, where the law and uh, other accountability and so on measures of the past have exhausted their uh, relevance. And so instead of seeking to find uh, through judicial rulings about, you know, whether a decision requires a, a human element or not. I think we need really quite innovative, creative thinking about how to uh, address the, the downside and risks that are associated with use of AI. So um, it was stated in, in some previous Senate inquiry that the AAT was the cornerstone of Australia's administrative law system. Why is it so important? Well, it's so important uh, because it was so good <laughs> for, for virtually all of its life. Uh, I mean, it was invented to international acclaim. I mean, all uh, countries, uh, to some extent, have a, a process for 
dealing with the grievances of ordinary citizens about um, the decisions that government uh, might make. When, it, when Australia uh, introduced the uh, Administrative Appeals Tribunal merits review of uh, government decision-making, it was and has been until very recently the gold standard internationally in, in how to do that in ways that make the system accessible to uh, citizens without undue cost and um, efficiently assess the correctness or otherwise of the decisions and do so in a way which uh, helps to provide government with uh, feedback on uh, any systemic changes or improvements that they uh, might consider making. And, and for listeners who may not be very familiar with really what administrative law is generally and its relationship with the AAT, could you describe a bit? Yes. Um, the big distinction between what courts do and what uh, a tribunal like the Administrative Appeals Tribunal does is that taking the courts, they only consider the correctness or otherwise of some issue in terms of whether it is legal or not legal, and secondly, whether the process uh, has given the person or body a fair hearing, a fair opportunity to, to put their case. Uh, by contrast, courts uh, never get to the merits of whether the, the preferable or the, the, uh, the best uh, decision uh, has been made. They, they just, it's not part of the brief um, yeah, that, that courts have. Uh, tribunals are set up to look, amongst other things, at whether it's legal or not, but principally to hear from the citizen about, and the public service who made the decision, about whether the right, the correct decision has been made uh, within whatever uh, scope uh, there is for um, difference in the, in the kinds of decisions that, that might be made. I mean, it simply to, to grant or not grant a payment or determine its level of payment or whatever. So that's, we use the phrase that uh, merits review because the tribunals are the bodies that do what the ordinary citizen would expect that um, any system of accountability would do. That is to say, to look at <laughs> all of the facts and issues uh, around the decision that has been made. Uh, and it's, it, that's why when they, uh, if they can only take it to court, that's why they get so uh, upset to discover that, well, actually nobody allows them to talk about the actual decision. They're all uh, banging on about the legality or illegality of, of something. Yeah. To summarise, it's the court is really concerned with the legality of a particular action and whether there was a fair hearing proposed to that, to the person involved in it. When we're looking at the AAT, they're more concerned as to given the decision that had to be made by, let's say, a government department, whether that was the correct decision, given the facts, given the considerations. Yeah, oh, exactly. I, know, I mean, the phrase that is used um, uh, in the tribunal and in the courts to describe that is that uh, the search is for the correct and preferable decision, that it's sound, uh, the best interpretation of the facts, and to the extent that there are uh, choices to be made, that the best choice, the preferable choice, has been made by the decision maker rather than a, a second best or third best, if you could put it that way, view of the, of the citizen's issue. I mean, do you want to even do a bit of a brief introduction of how the, the AAT has come into the form it is today? Yes. Well, um, to sort of track um, it, you need, we need to appreciate that... Um, there were quite a lot of ad hoc tribunals, uh, even before bodies like the Social Security Appeals Tribunal were set up in, uh, it, and it, it started in 1975, and as I became a member in 1976. It wasn't until, you know, another 15 years or so that as part of what was called the, the new administrative law, that bodies that hadn't existed, the such as uh, any, any body that looked at merits review of uh, Commonwealth federal decisions within the public service. We didn't have an ombudsman, didn't even have an easy way of getting cases before the courts. 
So the new administrative law created a merits review body called the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. And it wasn't until around, um, what is it now, about six, seven years ago, (laughs) that uh, the original aspiration that the AAT should absorb all of the other ad hoc tribunals, specialist tribunals, actually actually occurred. In the, in the early 1990s, a, a government uh, introduced legislation to make the Administrative Appeals Tribunal the one-stop shop, I suppose, is the best way of putting it, for all citizens' concerns about federal government decision-making. <clears throat> and uh, it got blocked in the Senate. And it wasn't until uh, 2014 or 2015, <laughs> whatever it was, that um, legislation was successfully introduced to greatly expand the range of matters that the Administrative Appeals Tribunal could look at. It always had jurisdiction from the 1980 onwards over social security, migration, refugees, and so on. The first tier level of decision-making in social security as distinct from going on appeal to the AAT, which was provided in 1980, that bringing of the first tier of social security decision-making under the umbrella of the AAT didn't occur until, as I say, uh, uh, 2015. So it's a, a system that covers immense ground. And how did it manage the fact that, one, it's the demand for it was probably expanding how did it allocate resources? I mean, it operates as, as uh, is the case, incidentally, at state level. There are now mega tribunals um, pretty well in all the states that deal in a similar way and have a similar history to what I just described. Um, and, and in all cases, for the big volume areas, the tribunal will establish a division which allows the appointment of people with more specialised expertise, a base. The, the rationale being that uh, people who have who are full bottle, <laughs> who have a really good understanding of law and policy in the area, are likely to be quicker and better at making decisions in that area. What do you what do you uh, and and the actual uh, budget arrangements for funding the administrative appeals tribunal? There are there are various formulae that um, depending on the areas of work that try to ensure that there is a adequate uh, financial and therefore personnel <laughs> appointment capacity to to cope with uh, fluctuations in, in work. The reason that the AAT ha- has got into such a strife recently, there are really big backlogs in the refugee and migration area, and uh, there's been some cutting of corners, shorter hearings or oral hearing, oral uh, reasons rather than written reasons and a whole variety of reduction of the quality of the process or of the explanation of the of the outcome for a citizen. And the reason that um, there's been that degradation, at least in terms of the financial aspect, is because an efficiency dividend has for 20 years or so been imposed on the tribunal. That is the assumption that somehow you can do uh, the same amount for less, that each each time a budget is brought down, uh, you deduct from it the prescribed figure of 2%. You would have got 100%, but we're only giving you 98% of your budget. Why? Well, because the assumption is that uh, you can do the same amount of work with less money. And that just doesn't doesn't cut it with uh, tribunals. At the human level, what kind of pressure did that create? Ah, what it led in social security to, uh, and in most uh, tribunals, they're no longer a tribunal. People think of a tribunal as having more than one member to hear your case. And in social security, it, there were always three at the start. And in medical matters, there were four. You know, a lawyer, somebody with a... Um, a social work background and medically qualified person and somebody with community experience. Well, uh, you know, 15 or so years ago, the way that tribunals um, adjusted to their declining uh, funding because of efficiency dividends uh, and so on, cutting their, their real real income, uh, was to uh, say, well, we, 
it, it'll, it'll be a lot cheaper to to run Terry Carney's hearing if we only need one member. We don't have to pay two sessional payments or three sessional payments. And the next step is and next step is no member at all. It'll just be a computer. <laughs> yes, it is. And you know the the, the duration of hearings um, uh, were shortened. You know that. In, in social security, the average, well, standard hearing now is, is one hour. That's one hour uh, from go to woe to introduce a person who's often quite nervous and, you know, draw out what are their concerns and etc. I sense as well, you know, and this is indicated, well, at least, sorry, this is more of a result of the importance of the AAT, that is that it has become a bit of a, a political punching bag. It's been blamed for a lot of issues of policy and um, under the influence of political partisan politics um, in appointments. How would you maybe uh, push back against those kind of accusations? Oh, well, uh, <laughs> they come with the territory is the long and the short of it. And uh, look, I should remember the, the actual quote, but one of Australia's most famous uh, uh, pub public servants and citizens <laughs> uh, said who was involved in the initial creation of the AAT commenting on the uh, fact that all secretaries of all federal departments fought tooth and nail against the introduction of an administrative appeals tribunal. Why did they fight tooth and nail against it? Because they didn't want any external scrutiny of the quality of what then were, you know, frankly, better better quality public service decision-making. But uh, good or bad, the quality, uh, people don't like being held to account. And, uh, you know, uh, so there's always going to be tension. It's proper. There should be pushback tension, the person making a decision, the government uh, agencies, etc., uh, feeling hard done by because uh, their decision has been changed or set aside <laughs> or that there has been some delay or need for, you know, better policy work to be undertaken as a consequence of, of the work of uh, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. So that was always part of it. I remember from the, the hearing, um, or at least your, your testimony to the Royal Commission on Robo-Debt, They'd had asked you, how could you identify um, the amount of debts that were alleged under the robo-debt scheme? And your reply was that it was with, quote, enormous difficulty. Yeah, well, the department never appears um, in, in any of the social security uh, uh, matters. In, in my uh, 40 years there, they, they, they didn't uh, attend once. In that first robo-debt situation, I was able to require them to provide me with uh, additional written reasons addressing um, you know, making submissions about points that I put to them. Um, and I also uh, exercised the statutory power I had to invite them to appear, but I could not compel them to appear and they declined to appear. But I would have been too embarrassed, I think, to try to defend the indefensible is the reality. But... Uh, and yes, you were talking about the, um, uh, the the difficulty of identifying whether robo-debts constituted uh, one in a hundred of the matters that came before uh, the tribunal. We know that now from the figures. Uh, they did, but it, the one in a hundred didn't come sort of neatly, neatly gift wrapped with a with a ribbon on it saying I'm a robo-debt case. The only way you could tell it was a robo-debt case was to look at the 50 or so uh, pages of computer printout of the calculation, which is just raw uh, computer print-off. But, but the review officer never um, ad adverted to it being a robo-debt case, never mentioned that um, the evidence on which the debt was being calculated was tax office average income. And look, you know, that's... <clears throat> When you have well-qualified uh, members of a tribunal who know what to look for and a tribunal whose job it is uh, to act in an inquisitorial fashion, not like courts where, you know, you sit back and you listen to the argument uh, put by its side, but it's your job to discover through your questioning uh, what are the um, um, relevant concerns that might 
be capable of being considered and or rectified on the part of the applicant? And what is the, what is the uh, answer in case that a department might have? In social security matters, uh, you have to uh, dig both of those out as well as then make a decision about, you know, which, is the <laughs> which of those two pictures is the, is the correct picture. Because a review officer letter, really, if ever, uh, did any adequate justice to what the department's case for defending its decision uh, might have been. And certainly uh, applicants, um, you know, who'd never appeared before a tribunal in their life, even if they're appearing by phone, are too nervous or, you know, I mean, they, they just would not know what, what the relevant considerations might be that might help them to improve or, or completely yeah. win their matter. The um, Attorney General last year in December announced that um, following the recommendation of a Senate inquiry in that same year would essentially abolish the AAT and replace it. What did you think of that decision, Terry? Did you think it was the right one to make? I did think it was the right one. Um, it was, um, I mean, you, one doesn't ever like to be put in a situation where a body, um, yeah, the only way to fix it is to abolish it and start from scratch. And, and the problem was that there was no uh, independent uh, assessment of the qualifications of, of, or appropriateness of members being appointed to the AAT. It rose from always one or two people with a political uh, background um, uh, as members and, you know, polit good former politicians uh, have a, a really good grasp uh, very often of, of how public administration works and so, you know, they make good members. But in place of being, you know, three or four percent over the last couple of years of the former government, the proportion of, a, of political appointments uh, had risen to 40%. It was nearly half of all uh, appointments. And uh, of those people, some were appointed who'd never applied to be a member of the tribunal. The captain's pick. Uh, others had applied, yeah, captain's pick. Uh, others had a, a applied and were not um, put through what was an inadequate but nevertheless um, uh, vetting process that uh, the president and others of the tribunal had. And so you, the, the, they were just, the, the, amongst other things, it wasn't just their political background, they were incompetent. They had no understanding of, of how to deliver their, you know, an adequate standard of review of merits, uh, review on the merits mm. of people's decision. It, it seems that the ability to bring in, let's say, members, bring in new members who were non-legal practitioners was through a particular criteria within Section 7.3 of the AAT Act, and one where, where the, in the opinion of the Governor-General, a person could be appointed if they had special knowledge or skills relevant to the duties of a member. And it, it, it appears that a lot of these maybe more politically motivated selections, those of non-legal backgrounds, was through that clause I also remember reading in the Callanan report, you had actually defended this kind of approach since to only select legally qualified members would be a kind of limitation. Could you elaborate a bit on that, Terry? Uh, look, look, frankly, unfortunately, the Callanan report, with all due respect, <laughs> um, it, it demonstrated itself uh, no understanding of what the uh, demands and requirements are of uh, administrative Review. What did the Callanan report fail to, to demonstrate? Well, um, nearly every recommendation of the Callanan report, with a couple of exceptions, the ones that I flatly reject. The most serious was this notion that lawyers are somehow eminently qualified, or that they have that their expertise is the expertise most needed in order to determine what is the correct and preferable decision in the vast, vast majority of areas that the tribunal has jurisdiction over. They're not. Yeah. They're not. And why? Why is that? Why are they not? I mean, as a law student, this is <laughs> shocking news to me, Terry. <laughs> shocking news. Shocking what news. What have I done five years of my life for? Well, not, not the least of it is that, um, and you know, we were talking a few minutes ago about the fact that 
completely unqualified people were appointed to the tribunal. And to give you an illustration of that, there was a, a senior member who, in my presence, said, uh, when I review a social security matter, um, I only allow them to talk about the things that they mentioned when they requested the review. In other words, they, they were saying there's somehow some jurisdictional constraint that the person, when they phone, saying I'm unhappy with this social security decision and, uh, and whatever words they use by phone or in their letter or their email to express their concern, that, that, that you're ticked that you're confined to those pleadings. Oh, so they unfairly restricted the scope of, of the matter. Yes, number one. And number two, um, the person's mouth fell open when, um, when um, there was a demonstration of how uh, a hearing, an inquisitorial hearing, operates because that particular member hadn't, as, and they'd been there for a, a year or so. <laughs> they went. They went. How many, how, many, how many matters would they have dealt with by that time? <laughs> well, fortunately, they were on the general division, so not so many. Uh, I, I've got no idea. But, but they, um, they, they were still in a mindset where they were going of a court, right? Okay. Um, so they came in with the wrong approach of an adversarial, yeah. adversarial, you know, sort of culture, rather than the inquisitorial approach to the hearing, which mm. is uh, essential if you're going to adequately find out, you know, what the two sides, if you like, of the dispute might be and and be in a position to, to make a, a correct decision. And obviously, you know, what you mentioned earlier when talking about the, the robo-debt issues when, and you had raised the concerns you had, that you were not reappointed in 2017. Yeah. Um, now, it's been reported that was as a result of your resistance towards the scheme that was implemented in, in your hearing. Well, that was what was perceived within your decisions at the AAT. <laughs> Look, uh, I, can't, I can't tell. Uh, nobody can tell. It, it appears to gain some colour. I certainly uh, uh, felt that uh, that causal link, that fired decisions setting them setting it aside as totally illegal, <laughs> had led to me not being uh, reappointed. It, it was prior to the Royal Commission of Work and Evidence. Uh, um, that was based on the fact that it was a non-appointment a day after what is the sort of last-minute process, which is that you update your conflict of interest statement on the on the evening or the day that it's uh, otherwise to go before the cabinet as a below-the-line item for the cabinet meeting of that day. Um, what the Royal Commission, solicitors for the Royal Commission and part of the documents that are found uh, are this on this on the day that I my statement and evidence and so on was aired um, is that uh, I think there was a, a five day uh, gap uh, between my non me being taken off the appointment list and that five days or so prior to that press release had been prepared which included my biography uh, as one of the people being reappointed uh, for I think a seven-year term or whatever. <laughs> Who made that decision? <laughs> Who made that decision? We don't know. Even the Royal Commission can't uh, delve into that. Uh, the, I mean, <laughs> the really exciting thing for, for lay people, I suppose, was um, if they followed any of the uh, hearings, was, uh, you know, hearing about uh, the fact that, you know, for example, even the Royal Commission was a breach of the prerogatives of the parliament to uh, say, as we've discussed here at different stages, oh, well, you know, a select committee made this recommendation or uh, <laughs> this document was put in, in, in front of a parliamentary uh, committee. Cabinet in confidence process um, in particular has prevented uh, any real evidence about whether it was just happens chance and they decided that... Uh, I'd been around for long enough, and you know, maybe that <laughs> could have been the reason. <laughs> or whether, and I think much more likely, um, you know, they, they decided they'd be uh, better off um, you know, without uh, me uh, invalidating, um, you know, further further robo-debt uh, cases. 
maybe it was an algorithm that decided not to reappoint you, Terry. Either way, they did public a favour and they did me a favour because I would have agonised about for how much longer I would have continued to just hand down invalidation decisions, knowing that for the rest of, we didn't know the total number then, but you know, I knew it was a huge number. Because as I say, only um, uh, five in every 10,000 robo-debts was getting to the tribunal. I didn't think it was anything like that sort of proportion, but I knew that it was pretty a pretty rare occurrence and you know if the scheme had kept running I would have felt obliged sometime in 2018 that's quite early in 2018 to um, to tender my resignation so I could uh, make public as I did in my online article and you know why I felt that the decision why the scheme was illegal and you know in breach of other ethical uh, obligations on on lawyers and so on well, t- Terry, thank you so much for your time today. I- I've, and I imagine our, our audience will share this as well, is that I'm incredibly grateful for your time and I've learned, I think, a great deal. So thank you very much. And thank you to our listeners. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. And you can find us on Twitter at The MyOps. Thank you very much.